Welcome to High Lawn Baptist Church in St. Albans, West Virginia, where our mission is to know Christ and to make Christ known. We're so glad you're here. For more information, visit us online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. For 2023, we're embarking on the Year of Our Lord, a user's guide to and through the Scriptures. So grab your Bible and join us as we journey through the Bible. Well, welcome to session 14 in our journey through the Bible. We are in the divided kingdom in the latter half of Kings chapter 1 into the first part of 2 Chronicles. But before we get into God's Word, let's bow our hearts for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to study your Word. And we thank you for a community of faith built on your Word. That through the foundation that you've laid through your Son... Uh, Lord, we have hope that um, in Him we have redemption, and through His blood we have the assurance of not only the forgiveness of our sins, but the promise of everlasting life. So use this time that we commit into Your hands to help us to grow both in knowledge and in wisdom, just as our Savior did, and to be more conformed to His image. And it is in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. So we're continuing in our look at 1 Kings. This part, the second half of that, looking at the divided kingdom, the outline for it, um, which covers chapters 12 through 22, and also the, the stories that we're going to hear, or rather the accounts that we're going to hear, also double over in the second book of Chronicles. We have the split from Israel into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom that retains the name of Israel, the ten state tribes, and the lower three tribes, or the lower two tribes, excuse me, of Benjamin and Judah. Now again, there's a lot more in that. We'll talk about that in just a second as we get into the story. But uh, first, let's talk about the judgments that were imposed upon the royal house, upon the family of David himself. If you'll remember, when he had the episode with Bathsheba, uh, he was told from the prophet Nathan, uh, from the voice of God, that the sword would never depart from his house, meaning that there would always be conflict because of, of his sin. And in 1 Kings, we also hear that because Solomon abandoned the worship, the singular worship of God, meaning that he allowed the worship of other gods and actually partook in the worship of other gods, God himself pronounced judgment on him that uh, he will tear away the kingdom from him and give it to one of his servants. But for the sake of David and David's faithfulness, he would retain, the house of David would retain control of the kingdom of, or rather of the tribe of Judah, which would later become the southern kingdom. Now, one of the things you have to, that I hope that you're seeing as you're reading in the period of the kingdoms, uh, this is the time where you get into um, Elijah and Elisha, as well as many of the other prophets. This is where, where they really shine. So we're going to pay attention, hopefully, to their story. But as we progress, you're going to see that there are very few good kings. And what good kings there are do trip up occasionally. But what separates them, what separates most of the kings that the Bible identifies as bad kings 
uh, and walking in the evil ways of people like Jeroboam that we'll be introduced to in just a second, is that they're unrepentant. They are convicted of their sin, but they never repent of their sin. At least we don't have a biblical account of that repentance. So we now meet these two characters, Rehoboam and Jeroboam. Rehoboam is the son of Solomon, the crown prince of Israel at this time. Jeroboam was one of the contracted workers under Solomon. Rehoboam, his name means the people have enlarged, or the people has enlarged. He again was the son and successor of Solomon. When he came to power, he was 41 years old and his reign lasted approximately all these dates are circas. So he reigned from around the time of 931 through 913 BC. During the beginning of his reign, he approached Israel, he was approached by Israel actually after his coronation of the northern kingdom. So even in these times there is this cultural distinctiveness between the 10 northern tribes and the two southern tribes. So during this time period, he, right after he was accepted as king in Solomon's place, representative from the 10 northern tribes came to see him asking for relief from the burden of taxes imposed upon them by Solomon in his latter years. And uh, he asks them to give him a, couple, a few days time to consider it and he goes to two different sets of advisors. He goes to his father's advisors who counsel him that if you relieve them of their burden, they will serve you faithfully for the rest of their lives. He thinks about that advice and then he goes to his friends, the people that he grew up with, younger men, the Bible tells us, and he spurns his father's advisors and he accepts the advice of his younger men. It may, effectively, I think in some of your translations it says, my, my pinky is thicker than my father's waist. My father beat you with whips, I shall beat you with chains. Or something along those lines. So instead of just uh, remaining as is, he, he offered them no relief. He was very rude to them. He was very forceful with them. And he in fact increased their tax burden. And the people of Israel rebelled enters Jeroboam into the stage. Jeroboam's uh, name translates to the people will contend. He's from the tribe of Ephraim. And again, he was a public works supervisor effectively under King Solomon. Now, when Solomon's judgment was pronounced, a prophet from the northern tribes by the name of Ahiah actually went to Jeroboam while he was walking through a field alone and told him of Solomon's judgment. I think that we covered that in the last session. Uh, once Solomon gets wind of this, he tries to arrest Jeroboam, fearing that he would start a rebellion in his own lifetime, but Jeroboam flees to Egypt and waits for Solomon's death. He reemerges after he gets word that Solomon had died, and he actually takes part in this request of Rehoboam to, to seek tax relief on behalf of the northern tribes. And once they receive uh, the disrespect of Rehoboam, he leads them in rebellion against the king. Under his leadership, the northern tribes secede. The new kingdom of Israel is eventually proclaimed, and Ephraim, his home turf, becomes its political center. Their capital begins in the old town of Shechem. It will be moved to a newly built city called Samaria. 
there's a reason why in Jesus' time during the first century AD that Samaria is considered cursed ground and has more to do with just their prejudice of the people that live there. We'll, we'll talk about that uh, probably in the next couple of sessions. Jeroboam is proclaimed the first king of the northern tribes and he reigns from 922 BC to 910. During this time of division, both kingdoms lose a massive amount of wealth and ground. And we're going to talk a bit more about that in just a second. So again, there already existed a cultural difference, a division between the northern and southern kingdoms. Uh, in fact, even before this point in time, you always hear them mentioned as Judah and Israel, or Israel and Judah. So there was already a division that existed before the Civil War. After Rehoboam's uh, disrespect of the, other, the elders of the other tribes, the northern citizens riot. They actually murder one of his officials. Knowing that the riot is getting critically out of control, Rehoboam, the king, flees back to Jerusalem and organizes an army of 180,000 men to march on Shechem to retake the northern kingdom by force. And it's interesting to note that it's at this point in time that Benjamin allies itself with Judah. Benjamin joins in in sending choice troops to invade the northern territories. But one of the prophets of God actually gets in front of the army before it has a chance to cross the border and proclaims that what you're experiencing right now is God's will. Do not fight your brothers. God is in control. And he, he reminds Rehoboam of the curse upon his father. So a state of civil war existed between both kingdoms, the southern kingdom, which we'll now call Judah, and the northern kingdoms. I need you to write this down in your notes. And if you don't have them already, please go to highlandbaptistchurch.org to pick them up. But at this time, the northern kingdom goes by multiple names. Sometimes it's referred to as Israel, which is what we normally would call it here in this setting. Sometimes your Bible refers to it as Ephraim because that's where its capital is located. Later on, once the new capital has been built, there are times in the Old Testament, not the new, but there are times in the Old Testament where the kingdom itself will be referred to as Samaria, as its new capital. Eventually, Rehoboam's son, King Abijah of Judah, will attempt to retake the north by force. Uh, kind of rejecting what, what the prophet had warned them about. But he wins a decisive battle in Ephraim, crippling the military capability of the northern kingdom. So the north, after this point in time, is not able to confront the south. During Jeroboam's reign, he detects that because the temple of the Most Holy God, because the temple of the God of Israel is still in Jerusalem, in southern territory, he becomes afraid that as the people go down there for Passover, as people go down there to observe the rest of the Levitical feasts, particularly Passover and Pentecost, when all able-bodied Jews have to go, and the Feast of Tabernacles, I almost forgot that, um, he decides to build his own temples. And not only does he decide to build his own temples, he decides to install his own priests. So he hires anyone who is willing to take upon themselves priestly responsibility and incidentally priestly paychecks outside of the tribe of Levi. He proclaims new festival holidays in competition with the temple in Jerusalem. 
And he goes to the extreme lengths of manufacturing two of all things golden calves, as if we haven't heard this one before. And he even goes so far as when he's introducing these new idols to the people of the northern kingdoms, he proclaims that these are the gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And you can imagine God's reaction to this. So he sets up two temple sites, one which is in Bethel. Ironically, Bethel, which translates to house of God, is one of the first places when instituted idolatry came to Israel. The second one is in the northernmost city of the, of the kingdom in Dan. There is archaeological digs in Tel Dan to this day, uh, which have started to uncover stonework, masonry, and other things that, that are associated with this new temple of Jeroboam. It is at this time that the Levites and other faithful Israelites flee into the south. As soon as these new temples are instituted, and as soon as the Levitical priesthood is called out by the new crown as traitors, those that are still faithful to Yahweh, those that are still faithful to the God of Israel, all of them in the north funnel into the south. So again, already in the south, Simeon, the state that used to be Simeon, has been politically absorbed by Judah. Benjamin has sided with Judah. The Levites, still loyal to the worship of God, are funneling into Judah, those that weren't already there. And the rest of the faithful from the other ten tribes are leaving their home states, are leaving their home territory, and funneling into the southern kingdom. So about the lost ten tribes, there are still Israelites from every tribe in the lower kingdom still protected and sheltered by Judah, still faithful to God. So let's put an end to that nonsense right now. I found them in the Bible. Um, but let's move on. Uh, also, this is where we see a sharp division in, what, uh, in the understanding of real estate in Israel. Please write this down in your notes. In Israel, up until this point in time, you did not own land. The land kind of owned you. You could not buy land in Israel. You could not sell land in Israel. All you could exchange is the value of what was grown on it. You could lease it out. But the land that you were attached to became yours to care for under Joshua. It was at that time that the land was parceled out. And rather than owning the, the, the deed to the land, God owned the deed to the land. But as the people of God, you were assigned a plot so that God could take care of you and that you were supposed to take care of on behalf of God. That's why with every year of Jubilee, the ownership, the original ownership to the land had to revert to its original family. But it's at this point in time when Judah gets flooded with all these new refugees, that that system of owner, that that system of custodianism, if you will, gets changed. Up until this time, for instance, in the Book of Ruth, when Naomi's husband left the land of promise, what that meant to that culture of that day, it wasn't like you were leaving Ohio to find work in Kentucky. One, he was leaving the parcel of land 
that God had assigned to his family generations before to care for. Number two, he was abandoning his extended family that was living in the surrounding area of Bethlehem. Number three, he was taking his family, eventually his sons, and moving, basically defecting into foreign territory, not any foreign territory, but the millennial enemy, which was Moab. That would be like someone not moving from West Virginia to Kentucky. That would be like someone who is in Washington, D.C., moving to Moscow at the height of the Soviet, uh, the Soviet Cold War era. But it's in this time, again, it's in this time that this idea of ownership changes from custodianship to owning property as, as a commodity. Anyway, so the political makeup of the southern kingdom remained largely the same. Judah... Uh, was the largest state of the, of the three. It was the capital. Uh, of course, Jerusalem being the holy site with the one and only temple of God that was proclaimed as such by his own voice. You had again Simeon, Benjamin, and Levi and all the refugees that came down to the southern kingdom with them. The political makeup of the northern kingdom, however, shifted greatly. Ephraim became the site of its southern, southernmost temple as well as the eventual building site for its capital of Samaria. The surrounding area region of Samaria, which would what is what would happen in Jesus' day, included areas in both Ephraim in the, south, the southern part and Manasseh in the north. Dan, of course, housed the northern temple. Manasseh held its first capital of Shechem. Levi, um, the unfaithful of, in the Levitical cities still there remained, and of course, you also had the descendants of Asher, Gad, Issachar, Naphtali, Reuben, and Zebulun, all of whom at this point in time were slipping into idolatry. Not just the idolatry of the two golden calves, but also they were allowing in Canaanite worship. Eventually, they would become syncretic, meaning that whoever was the surrounding neighbor could include their own form of worship in high places that they could build for themselves in the northern kingdom. This is called syncretism. So let's talk for a little bit about the difference between a human-built or made-up religion and true spirituality, the spirituality that comes from us, from the living God. First of all, human-built religion has one purpose, control. It is usually a system built up for political control, military control, economic control, or cultural unity. Any one of those things means that the few end up controlling the many. It is a source of spiritual slavery. It has usually at its core a capricious idol, meaning that it can keep its promises. It can forget about its promises. It can backstab you just as easily as it can love you. You have to curry favor from it just as they did in ancient Greece. In order to obtain the favor of Zeus, you had to provide a certain type of sacrifice that was over and above what the God would ordinarily require. You were currying favor from a fictitious being. There was always a works-based theology by which you attempted the labors of Hercules come to mind where you are trying to appease a lower someone in the name of a greater someone to earn something for yourself. The worship is also entertainment-based. I hate to put it that way, but that's the truth. Usually, uh, the worship of idols, such as the Canaanites in particular, in the book of Numbers, for instance, there's this great example uh, where Balak and Balaam, 
when they confer together, the prophet advises the enemy king to surround the Israeli camp with all of your most beautiful women to entice the men of Israel to leave the people of Israel and to worship your gods with you because their type of worship involved enticements. It involved sexual immorality. It involved basically throwing a giant party. If you've ever seen the Ten Commandments and that scene around the, the golden calf, that type of thing. But it's all about entertaining. It's all about the gratification of the flesh. My things do not change. It's all about enticing. Knowing, and they did that knowing that when God saw them turning away from him and worshiping others apart from himself, gods of stone and wood and stubble, as the Bible says, that he would remove his hand of protection from them. It's also self-glorifying, and you can see that all through their mythology. You, you, are, you become like that which you worship, meaning when you build an idol, you try to construct it with the ideas, with the virtues, and you even build stories around it based on what you find appealing, what you find attractive, what you yourself want to become. So in effect, you're building a God in your own image and worshiping something that you hope that eventually you yourself will become. Idolatry is self-worship. Idolatry is the most mischievous form of pride because it's taking your image, making your image divine, and putting your image in front and in place of God, which is why he hates it and will stand for nothing and no one to share glory with. It is also characterized by gradual indoctrination, meaning that uh, we, we call it Gnosticism. It's where you can only trust a new convert with a little bit of truth at a time. Now, what do I mean by that? Indoctrination, slow indoctrination. You go through this level of education, and when you are able to eat that lie and digest that lie, you get a little bit more indoctrination. And when you can eat and digest that much of the lie, then you get a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. So eventually, it's a form of what we would call brainwashing. It is pure indoctrination, where you are fed so much of the lie at a time that eventually, just like the old saying of a frog being boiled in water, you become adjusted to it so that you'll believe anything. Gradual indoctrination, you never get the whole revelation up at once. But in God's case, in the case of the worship of a God, our God, the only God, the singular God, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who himself proclaims that there are no other gods. His relationship is a covenantal relationship. It is an actual personal relationship in which God is the ultimate authority. And we have a back and forth relationship with Him. We talk to God through prayer. We receive, we receive the words of God through the revealed scripture and through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. We serve a holy and righteous God, meaning that God needs for nothing. The sacrificial, the sacrificial system was not about feeding God. It was about something else taking away our guilt in front of a holy and just God. God needs for nothing. God is all-sufficient, all-knowing, all-wise, all-present. But he's also righteous, meaning that if he promises something, he will fulfill that promise. If he casts a judgment, the judgment will be carried out. There is nothing that God cannot do, and there is nothing uh, except for one thing. God will not lie. 
God will not betray one of his own promises. Sacrificial style worship instead of entertainment style worship. In other words, a devotion. Which means that we come to him wanting to render not only in music, but in the way we live our lives a sacrifice of praise to God. We are not here to be entertained. We are not here to experience the music we want to hear. We are not here to experience or sing just what we want to do or do anything that we want to do. We come here at a devotion to Him to do what He has prescribed for us to do. We form the body of Christ as we come together in worship. We, he, we sing His praises as an act of testimony. If you ever remember, remember the words to the song Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a what? A wretch like me. It's a testimony about what God has done for me in identifying God for His worth in who He is. So worship is sacrificial. It's not about us, our wants, our desires, and our preferences. It's all about Him. And once we render our testimony, once we break the bread of life in song, we hear the Word of God proclaimed through the preaching and teaching of His Word through serving Him in the act of giving our offerings and, and having fellowship with each other, we effectively we commemorate the Christ event by forming the body of Christ, celebrating Him, teaching just as He taught, as the disciples learned, going in, including uh, going through a time of devotion and reconnection and rededication in communion, or following Him in, in death, burial, and resurrection symbolically through baptism. Every worship service is sacrificial, not about what we want, everything about what He wants. It's also God-glorifying, not self-glorifying. We're here to give. We receive because we give. We receive because we have reinvested what He invests within us. But we give. We give glory to God. On top of that, one of the highest things is that there is no Gnosticism in Christianity, or at least there shouldn't be. That was identified very early on as a heresy and as a form of paganism infiltrating its way into the church. All of God's revelation is offered for anyone by the scriptures. You have a copy of God's word. You can study it for yourself. I print a copy of Acts 17.11 or remember Acts 17.11 on each and every one of your notes for that reason. Study for yourselves. Take advantage of the links of love that God went to to give you a copy of God's Word. Anyway, those are the differences between man-made religion, which is all about control, and a God-centered religion, which is all about grace. Anyway, the judgment of Jeroboam. Eventually, after the altars were constructed, a prophet of God approached the altar at Bethel and actually prophesied straight to the altar. He prophesied the rise of King Josiah of Judah that he would rain down basically vengeance of God by causing the death of several priests and prophets that were coming into this form of idolatry. And to give a sign of God's power, the altar itself split in several pieces. Jeroboam's days were numbered. He and his whole line were due to end because he did not live up to the promise that he made to God which gave him the position of king over the northern tribes to begin with. Rehoboam himself became synchronistic. He started to allow altars to pagan gods to be built in the kingdom of Judah as well. 
And according to 2 Chronicles 12, he himself abandons the law of God along these lines. Tensions had already started to increase around the Sinai border uh, between Judah and Egypt. And to kind of uh, to help protect, Judah built 40, 15 new fortified cities along that border around the river of Egypt. But uh, Pharaoh Shishak launched an invasion of Judah with 1,200 charioteers, over 60,000 horsemen, and what your Bibles call an uncountable or an incalculable number of ground troops, and quickly overwhelm the Judean defenses. He captures the Sinai territories and all of those fortresses. That's why uh, Judah was backed up back to the river of Judah, when, which you saw in the, the map of the, du, the two kingdoms. He lays siege to Jerusalem himself. He makes his way to the capital. And Rehoboam ends up paying him off with the treasure from the temple. Effectively, Egypt has cut off the great wealth that Solomon had enjoyed by cutting off trade uh, with the southern Arabian kingdoms, as well as trade access with the Gulf of Agaba, the Red Sea. And Judah ends up becoming a vassal state of Egypt. Instead of other states now giving tribute into Judah, Judah is now having to pay tribute to Egypt. Egypt allows Judah to have a king. But Judah's king is only there because Pharaoh is allowing it. Jeroboam I, this is the end result of his family. Jeroboam's life ends at 910 BC. Again, he was from the tribe of Ephraim. His son Nadab takes, um, takes, the, takes the crown and is only in power for two years. He's assassinated by one of his own military officers, um, Basha, who's from the tribe of Issachar. Basha proclaims himself the king of Israel, even though he was in this with a small conspiracy. And he murders personally, he sees to the murder of the rest of Jeroboam's family. So the house of Jeroboam only lasts to two kings. Omri is the cavalry officer at the time that organizes this coup d'etat of the kingdom of Israel. Basha actually carries out the deed. He does have a significant reign and then he dies. Ilha becomes the king over Israel. He only lasts for one plus years and he's murdered by another military official named Zimri. Zimri was under orders by Omri to execute Elha. He ends up dying after only seven days. Omri and Tibni surround his home and try to uh, wrestle control back. He ends up burning his own home down, so he dies after only a seven-day reign and suicide by fire. Tibni ends up finally succumbing after a five-year contested reign. So Tibni and Omri are in a civil war within a civil war. Omri, again, who is the mastermind of this, ends up taking Tibni out after a four-year contest for the throne of the, of the northern ten tribes. And Omri becomes finally king over Israel. He dies of natural causes, and he has a son by the name of Ahab, who you know as the husband of Queen Jezebel. That's where we'll pick up with the next session. The house of David, on the other hand, remains consistent through the entire length of the kingdom of Judah. When Rehoboam finally dies, depending upon which book and which version of the Bible that you're reading, 
It's either spelled Abijah or, or Abijam. Same person, just two different spellings. Reigns for two for uh, two plus years from 913 to 911 BC. He attempts again a subjugation of the northern kingdom, and he ends up winning a decisive military victory at Mount Zimmerim, where he shouts, according to Second Chronicles 13:12. And again, this is dependent dependent upon your translation. God Himself is with us and is our captain. God is our leader, in other words, and he rallies the troops with that. And he ends up crushing Israel's military might. He doesn't capture the territory, but he ensures that Israel can no longer harass the southern kingdom of Judah. He even adds a bunch of territory to the tribe of Benjamin, the northern border cities of Israel. Let's talk about the final judgment of Jeroboam and his fall in chapter 13 of 2 Chronicles. As we read together, starting with verse 2. There's a, there was a war between Abijah and Jeroboam. Abijah sent his army of warriors in order with 400,000 fit young men. Jeroboam arranged his mighty army of 800,000 men, fit young men, for battle formation against him. Then Abijah stood on Mount Zemarim, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, and said, Jeroboam and all of Israel, hear me. Don't you know that the Lord God of Israel gave the kingship over Israel to David and his descendants forever by a covenant of salt? Translation, a covenant that can never spoil. But Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, a servant of Solomon, son of David, rose up and rebelled against his Lord. Then worthless and wicked men gathered around him to resist Rehoboam, son of Solomon, when Rehoboam was young, inexperienced, and unable to assert himself against him. And now you are saying that you can assert yourselves against the Lord's kingdom, which is in the land of one of David's sons. You are a vast number and have with you the golden calves that Jeroboam made for you as gods. Didn't you banish the priests of the Lord, descendants of Aaron and the Levites, and make your own priests like the peoples of the lands do? He, he's charging the people of Israel with being as detestable as everybody else in Canaan. Whoever comes to ordain himself with a young bull and the seven rams may become a priest of what are not gods. Translation, anybody with enough of a pocketbook can become a priest. But as for us, the Lord is our God. We have not abandoned him. The priests ministering to the Lord are descendants of Aaron, and the Levites serve their tasks. In other words, we're still doing it right. They offer a burnt offering and fragrant incense to the Lord every morning and every evening. And they set the rows of the bread of presence in the ceremonially clean table. The light of the lamps of the gold lampstand every evening. We are carrying out the requirements of the Lord our God while you have abandoned him. So he's basically drawing the line to the sand. Are those two golden statues going to protect you the way that the God, the living God of Israel can protect us? We are carrying out the requirements of the Lord our God while you have abandoned him. Look, God and his priests are with us at our head. In other words, he's our leader. The trumpets are ready to sound the charge against you. Israelites, don't fight against the Lord God of your ancestors, for you will not succeed. The line is drawn. He gave them fair warning. He confronted them with their sin. And this is the result. Jeroboam had sent an ambush around to advance from behind them, so they were in front 
of Judah, and the ambush was behind them. So he's dividing his forces in a pincer formation to surround, kind of like a crescent moon, to surround and then close in on them. Judah turned and discovered that the battle was in front of them and behind them. Remember, they're more than double the size of Judah, and now they're completely surrounding them. So they cried out to the Lord. Then the priests blew their trumpets, and the men of Judah raised the battle cry. And when the men of Judah raised the battle cry, God routed Jeroboam and all of Israel before Abijah and Judah. So the Israelites fled before Judah, and God handed them over to them. And Abijah and his people struck them with a mighty blow, and 500,000 fit young men of Israel were killed. The Israelites were subdued at that time. The Judahites succeeded because they depended on the Lord, the God of their ancestors. Abijah pursued Jeroboam and captured some cities from him, Bethel, Jeshana, and Ephron along with their surrounding villages. So all of this territory in the south part of Israel becomes a borderland into the tribal state of Benjamin, part of the kingdom of Judah. Jeroboam no longer retained his power during Abijah's reign. Ultimately, the Lord had struck him dead. However, Abijah grew strong, acquired 14 wives, and fathered 22 sons and 16 daughters. All that to say, that the house of David would endure. The rest of the events in Abijah's reign, along with his ways and sayings, are written in the writing of the prophet Edo, which I really wish had survived because I'd like to read that. Here, however, unfortunately, we get another account of the end of the reign of King Abijah of Judah. In the 18th year of Israel's king, Jeroboam, son of Nebat, Abijah became king over Judah, he reigned three years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Machah, daughter of Abishalom. Abijam walked in the sins of his father. In other words, he was still synchronistic. Even though he himself apparently had, in, in the early days of his reign, a fierce devotion to God, he nevertheless allowed the continuing worship of other gods in the land of God. Abijam walked in the sins of his father before him, his father before him had committed, and he was not wholeheartedly devoted, devoted to the Lord his God as his ancestor David had been. Now remember, here's the difference. David still screwed up, but David repented. David sought forgiveness and turned away from his sinful state. Anytime that you see this phrase, it means that they had not sought forgiveness, or, or at least they had sought forgiveness, but not repentance. Unless you repent, you shall all likewise perish. That's New Testament. And it identifies the difference between a, a heart after God and a heart that becomes parted from God's ways. Verse 4, But for the sake of David, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem by raising up his son after him and by preserving Jerusalem. So for the house of David, we of course had Rehoboam, passed the crown to King Abijah, and who, and we'll pick this up next Wednesday, the first bane of King Ahab, King Asa of Judah. So, in your small groups for discussion, of course, continue to share your reading and your journal highlights, and make sure that you're journaling this note. Again, it's a gift to yourself as we're going through the Bible as quickly as we are. Whatever challenges you, whatever you have to scratch your head about, 
whatever you knew already and whatever you don't understand initially. Pray about that, journal it down, and share that with the people that you're in fellowship with. But I also want you to consider these questions along with what we are reading. Number one, does power really corrupt? In other words, does it have to corrupt someone? Does it innately corrupt someone? If someone receives power, politically speaking, or financially speaking, even culturally speaking, when they receive that amount of influence and control, does it necessarily mean that they automatically get corrupted? Number two, what prevents corruption? Even if you're not in a rulership position or a great position of authority, any one of us can get corrupted at any time. What prevents that corruption? What hedges has God put in place to help us out, especially from ourselves? Lastly, I want you to ponder what is the Bible's definition based on what you have read so far, based upon what God has started working in your heart through His Word, what would you say is the Bible's definition of evil? Something else I want you to ponder, just, I know it's not on the board, but it's something that I want you to keep considering. If these are fallen people, if we learn about King Abijah in one book and discover that he actually became corrupted in another book, is Abijah worth learning? Is it worth, why do we study the history of people who are fallen? People who start off with so much promise and then who collapse. Why is it worth studying those lives? Please ponder these things as you consider, continue to meet with your groups and as you continue to study God's Word, which I pray that you do diligently. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for your Word and for the lengths that you went through to get it to us. We thank you for being a God who loves us in spite of ourselves and who offer us the chance of rededication, the chance of repentance, the chance for forgiveness to, so that we can stand before you as your children. Please open our hearts as well as our minds and our hands to your word so that we might not just learn the facts, but we can truly make it part of our lives as we seek to draw closer to each other and closer to you. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us at High Lawn Baptist Church. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. At High Lawn, we believe that when you love God, you share His Word. When you love others, you spread the gospel. We would love for you to join us next time, and if possible, to join us in person, to contact or learn more about us, to donate to our ongoing ministry, or most importantly, to learn about the salvation offered to you through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Visit us at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. Once again, thank you, and God bless you.